Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I did have a comment, and uh, instead of reading it, I'm just going to tell you what it is. Someone just wrote me and said they had never read 1984 before until this program, and uh, they're so excited we're doing this on the radio. And uh, so we actually are getting people to read 1984, so maybe I could get a quick a kickback from Orwell. <laughs> of course, he's dead now, so it doesn't really matter, but... Anyway, uh, just uh, really like people listening in, and I hope you're really benefiting from it. I know we are here, the, the ones of us that are working together to produce this for you. So now on our last program, Grant Turgeon and I completed our discussion of Emmanuel Goldstein's book titled The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. And of course, now that's taken from book two of George Orwell's 1984. Now, if you miss those programs, you may still... Hear them on SoundCloud or at kpcg.fm at the trumpet.com website. And I know that will be very beneficial for you to do that. Now for today's program, I want to begin discussing book three of Orwell's 1984. So our series on this book is really coming to an end. Now to help me to do this today, we're going to have a grand smash party in here. So with me in the studio today is Grant Turgeon, Emma Moore, and, of course, my partner in literature, Deborah Leap. So welcome back, ladies and Grant. It's good to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> now, unfortunately, due to other commitments, James Brandon <laughs> cannot be with us again today. But uh, we're going to try and drag him in uh, before we're finally done with all this. All right. So I just want to open up the discussion. I know everyone's anxious to get going with this. So what do you think of book three? Just let's give me an overview. Just, everybody give me an overview. I think it's chilling myself. Well, this is the part of the book that Winston always knew would happen to his life. He always knew his life would end in the ministry of love, and it would be far from a loving experience in the ministry of love. And it's just really the science of how to break a person. I mean, they really do have a specific pattern of you go to this room, uh, you're miserable with a bunch of other people, and then they take you into another room and they torture you. Then they put you back in a nicer room by yourself and you have more meals. But then later you might be getting starved again in between other torture sessions. But it does seem like it's a pretty methodical approach and they know exactly how to not only torture people, but change their minds to where they love right. the party too. Right. It, it's, it really does focus on playing with your mind, the whole experience. Okay, Emma. Um, this, this part of the book's probably the most intense like you've been saying it's um just the the climax really but then i think also it gets to that point and then at the end is there's another sort of climax that hits you right at the very last page that you can see the results of what happens in that that ministry of love right right okay deborah 
Well, yes, I, I basically what everyone else has said. It's it's um it's hard to read. Like I've I've often said this book is is hard to read altogether, and then this is like the worst part in some ways. But you know you, you see the you see kind of why and what's going on and the reasoning at the end. But it's it, I think it's it's hard to read, but I think it's worthwhile reading. Right. It's I would consider it very dark. I know some parents have asked me if their teenagers should read it, and I, I say well. If you read it with them, I mean, especially book three, I think is it's really pretty graphic. It's not graphic sexually, but it is graphically, it is physically graphic, you know, in terms of the torture. Um, but but I think that uh, certainly for younger, you know, like grade schoolers and high schoolers, uh, I don't know if this would be a really good idea, yeah. you know, for them to read. <clears throat> you can find ways to talk about it with them, but uh, but anyway. <clears throat> What I think is so interesting about even book three, there was parts of, uh, you know, when Grant and I gave the other two programs, when we started the programs early on, you know, with the, with the, the different, um, you know, panels, the men's panel and the women's panel, I, you know, we could, we could grasp, you know, how much the book is coming alive today. They're still talking about it, even on the news this week and last week. I mean, they're talking about Orwell. This is Orwellian. This is... I think they even talked about it at the, at the RNC, you know, uh, campaign, and so so I thought maybe by the time we get back to book three, it's not going to be as current until I read book three again last night, and it's just as current today as it was well when he wrote it in 1948, and so so he really did understand the darkness of socialism. And uh, we we know he was a socialist, but his brand of socialism was not like this. And so so anyway, um, <clears throat> I do think uh, uh, in, in terms of how I think book three really does tie in with today is this whole first scene when he first gets into the ministry of love. And, you know, he's in this room and he's in this cell with a bunch of paroles. And, and you know, when he gets in there, there's other political you know, criminals in there with them, or so-called pro- political criminals, they're in there, they're absolutely terrified. You know, they're, they're so afraid of what's coming. And it's just all so mental. But the proles are, there's a drunken lady, you know, there's these other criminals, there's a prostitute, you know, there, you know there's thieves and probably murderers in there. And, and what's going on with that? I mean, I, I think we ought to discuss it for a little bit. That's what what goes on with the proles and the guards. It's, well, it's weird because the party doesn't care anything about actual physical crimes, especially among the proles. But even among party members, they just care about what you're thinking and they want to stamp out all of your wrong thoughts. It just kind of someone the other day actually told me that at the Philadelphia Eagles football stadium, there's a jail and a judge on site. So, you know, people get drunk in the stands and they fight and they don't care. They know they're just going to go down there, get a minor citation, and they're (laughs) going to be unruly in the jail overnight and be let out the next morning. No problem. Uh, But in this case, you know, the proles are probably a lot like that. They know that nothing too bad is going to happen to them. They might be there overnight. It's not a big deal. The political prisoners know they're going there to eventually die. And it's going to be a horrible process leading up to that. Right. Right. Okay. Anybody else before I make my big observation again? Well, it is interesting. They, they, it seems like the the proles know how to um, 
bribe or they, you know, the different uh, guards. The guards know them. It's like they're friends. They know each other. Yeah, they've been there before. It's like it's like a revolving door. And in some ways, in some of the big cities like New York City, that's what's going on. They're talking about how they're they're letting out a lot of the um, criminals on the street. They they're in just for a short period of time and they're out again. So it's similar that way. It's it's like it's just like you know they don't. It, it just it was just really interesting. I thought to see that. Right. Okay. Emma. I I think the big thing with well, the big difference between these two different types of prisoners is the way that they've been surviving throughout their whole lifetime. The party prisoners have oh, well they've gone through this process. They've um, submitted to the party's ideologies. They've played their cards right. They're obedient. And the proles, they've just had to make do with their aim in life is just to try and have a comfortable, quote unquote, life as they can. So they're, they're, they're using the black market. They're trying to get those little pleasures and comforts in life that have been denied to them. So I just think that that cell, like all those people in that cell show the difference in how they've been living their lives and trying to survive. Right. Yeah. The proles are more lawless. So they're not really quite as afraid of just having a wrong thought, which is... The, the main thing that all the party members are trying to avoid for an entire lifetime, which is impossible. Right. And I think what Orwell is trying to show is that socialism doesn't really care about law. It, it really doesn't. It, it, can, it, it cares about controlling people. And, of course, uh, you know, this is so evident in the book that, that the thing that they want to do most with uh, Winston, he's such a threat because he thinks. You know, he, he doesn't necessarily always think according to the party line. And, of course, we know that Julia, she never did. She just used it to get what she wanted. And so, so I think that that's uh, uh, really interesting. But anyway, that there are, you know, dangerous criminals uh, being set free today. And uh, even uh, uh, I know President Trump's talked, talked about it is, I mean, they're just let go. I mean, they've a lot of these Democratic mayors and governors of states have let murderers go. And they're out there, what, murdering people right now. And it's just crazy that, you know, the, the, the murder rate in Chicago has doubled this summer over last summer. And, uh, and yet they always want to come back and say, whose fault is it? It's Donald Trump's fault, you know, <laughs> because, well, he's stirring up all the, all the, the fear and the hate. And so, it, you know, it's just really crazy, you know, what, what's going on. So uh, I, I just wanted to maybe t- just briefly, just from my own standpoint, talk about the Pope, the poet Ampleforth. He's in the cell, and the, the poor guy. I mean, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to write a po- you know, write poetry for a living, and then I realized there's no money in it. It's like you're not going to survive, you know. <laughs> and even, you know, you, you know, uh, I think even Ben Frank. We're going through Ben Franklin's autobiography in the sophomore English class, and. He wanted to be a poet, and his dad said, "Poets are poor, Ben. You don't want to be a poet." <laughs> you know. So, but here's Ampleforth. He's in the prison. Uh, you know, he, uh, Winston says, "What are you doing in here?" And he he said, "Well, I guess I've done something wrong." And then finally, I mean, Orwell does a good good way of building it. He built it, builds it, builds it. And what did he do wrong? He left the word God in one of Kipling's poems because they were. They were reconstituting, uh, or they were cleaning up the poem so it fit the party narrative, and you can't have God. And what are the Democrats doing? Even at their convention, they took God completely out of you know the Pledge of Allegiance. 
Right. You can't and, say God if you're a socialist. <laughs> well, the one woman who did it during their convention, she paused for a long time after that. She said, one nation under, and then she, you know, she left that part out, and then she yeah. just kept going. So they act like, oh, we didn't, we didn't leave God out, but it's on video. Like, the stuff right. that they lie about, too, is all on video. Anyone can look it up and watch it for themselves, or they saw it live, and then you're just wondering how anyone could possibly believe those lies. Right. And that's, that's why Winston actually got in so much trouble. I mean, I know he's just a, a fictional character, but he was in, his job was to, you know, rewrite the truth. You know, he kept rewriting things, you know, and so, so, so that's really happening. And then the other thing, uh, I know we discussed Parsons, at least in the first set of programs, but now Parsons is also in jail, and he's a political prisoner, and uh, I think I think that's a, it's just great. How, why, why is he a prisoner? Get someone else to talk. I have all of you in here, so I don't have to work as hard, you know. So, well, his his uh, daughter turned him in because supposedly he said some things in, in his sleep, and the thing is, is he doesn't even. He doesn't know because he was sleeping, but he assumes that that she she was right, and he was proud of her. He's proud of her raising her. He raised her that way so that you know she she did the right thing. I mean, it's it's really weird <laughs> that he would feel that way, but that's that show it, it's kind of like an example of the way they're breaking down the family. Right. And that 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 there can't be any um, family loyalty. That um, right. you know that the only loyalty is to the state. Right. And Parsons is the perfect party member, too. That just shows you right. how hopeless that life right. would be because right. when children can lie about something that you yelled out in your sleep and that's supposedly your only crime against the party your whole life, it just shows there's you literally have no hope in a situation like that. Right. And I, I think it just goes to show, even like uh, with Black Lives Matter, I mean, they they are very open about what they're their goals are and their goals are to destroy the nuclear family their goals are uh you know to get the minds of children that's that's all their goals i mean they they have uh they want to destroy the family they and and i think orwell brings this out in his book and remember now he wrote this in 1948 which is how it get, he got 84 he just changed the numbers around the, the the numbers around but but parsons really shows us that you know that the, the party at that time, or the party in the book, they wanted to have uh, children disloyal to parents. They wanted to create disloyalty between husbands and wife. Uh, they wanted to, to create disloyalty to be f- between friends. I mean, just think about. I think we just talked about just a few seconds ago. People are turning everybody in, even over COVID nineteen supposed violations. And then here, Nancy Pelosi goes to a shuttered. <laughs> beauty parlor doesn't have a mask they're in there washing her hair and they're giving her you know a, a, a new hair fix i guess that's why i'd call it her and they catch her you know the the one the one uh security person catches it as nancy pelosi and thankfully they got it to to uh fox news <laughs> <laughs> and you know fauci's doing the same thing he got caught at the baseball park mm-hmm. but but there's two tiers in society, in the socialism, you got the upper elites that can do what they want. Everyone else has to step in line with their ideology. And yeah, so, I think we've all known those those children in grade school with us that were so bossy that you knew that they'd grow up totally unhappy no matter how successful they became, unless they had so much power that they could really control other people's lives. And that's really what 
the party's all about. Like they're just obsessed with controlling other people while somewhat being able to do whatever they want. Right. Right. Okay, Emma. And I think just this whole system has been set up really perfectly. Just the system of disloyalty. It's almost like the thought police aren't just confined to a certain um, section of people working for the government. It's it's everybody. That that um, obligation extends to your own family members, and that's that's really how they control all the people. Um, there's this process where. The majority are kept in line from dissension with ignorance, and then the minority that um, that Winston and Julia belong to are kept in line by fear. And then, since you don't have, or if you don't have that group of people, they're kept in line, or you know, destroyed um, eventually by by isolation. Right, right. So it, again, that's why I say this is really, really chilling. I think maybe before we move on to, to my next subject, let's talk about the white lights in the Ministry of Love. Mm-hmm. And and uh, if you remember back that when the uh, uh, very beginning of the book, when when we first get to meet Winston, he sees O'Brien, and he's had this dream about O'Brien. And O'Brien tells him in the dream, we'll meet in the place where there is no darkness. And so then he gets into, he's finally in the ministry of light, and there's never a light turned off. They have to have light. There's no windows. He doesn't know if it's midnight. He doesn't know if it's eight in the morning, but there's this light constantly. And he finally realizes what? <laughs> well, I didn't actually catch that reference until you all pointed it out to me, so I'm glad we're doing this book together. That's, that's, that's for sure. But the one thing that really does spook me with this, this example is just that Winston knows just from his own thoughts. Like, no one's told him that he's eventually going to die in the ministry of love, but he knows. And yeah. everyone knows that that's how it ends oh. because they just see other people disappear and then they're supposed to forget that they even notice people disappearing. Right. It's just that's how they, they all expect to end their lives. And it's just, it's crazy that no one even has to tell them and they still know. Right. Right. Well, he was he, he wasn't in the inner party, I guess, but he was still in the party. He, yeah, Julia, uh, there's not a lot said, but I. Uh. But he had no idea who O'Brien was either. So you could see there's quite a fair bit of ignorance among the regular party members to where they're not really told much, and yet they still know what happens. It seems right. like. Right, and and we do find out in in this uh, this last book that O'Brien was actually working him over for seven years. Mm-hmm. So so they were really studying him. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to that. Say any other any other discussion on the white lights? It just reminds me of something really clinical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like scary. It's like, you know, you can't sleep. You know. Well, it is. I mean, it's true. They he's always talking about how he has no idea if it's day or night. He has no idea of time, and that's another way of, a part of torture is he has no idea how long he's been in there um, because it could be day or night, and and he's he tries to guess in terms of. Later on, when he does get food, you know, how many times a day he gets food, things like that. What but, time is it? Is it know, actually noon? Is it actually noon or he is doesn't it? doesn't know. Is it night? Who knows? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So let, let's talk about, uh, um, we, already, we, we already talked a little bit about the fear of room 101. Um, but uh, when, when Winston's in the cell, finally O'Brien comes into the cell 
And what's what's Winston's reaction? Let's let's talk about Winston's <laughs> reaction when he when O'Brien first comes in. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, well, I think in this part Winston's still under the charade that he's part of, you know, the Brotherhood, this organization, and O'Brien's still on his side and then <laughs> finally it clicks that that that's not the case yeah. and O'Brien is essentially the reason that Winston is in the Ministry of Love. Yeah, right. Yeah, the first thing he says is, "Well, they got you too." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then O'Brien says, "They got me a long time ago." They yeah. got me a long okay. time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's similar to Mr. Charrington in that way. The the man who owned that antique shop and was renting the room to mm-hmm. uh, Winston and Julia. Yeah, he's a criminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah. was totally acting like he understood Winston's way of thinking and was sympathetic to the cause and yet all of a sudden he morphs from kind old man to just like a a sharp heartless general basically as as they get arrested right I I think the thing that that is kind of chilling about that is you know Winston said uh, you know even in the beginning in the beginning of the book he brings out again in this book three where he felt like they had the same kind of mind and and O'Brien even says it what we do you know, and and the the point is that there are people that can be that deceitful. I mean, just even as little kids, little kids can do that to each other. You know, they act like you're your friend, and then you know they go to another group of people and they're mocking you. You know, <laughs> and then usually they always get caught doing it. You know, what do you mean? You you you're saying you're my friend, and now you're mocking me with them? You know what's going on here? Well, there's, so. there is a part there where Winston realizes that O'Brien has already had every thought Winston's ever had and then dismissed it and found an argument for how those natural thoughts are wrong. Like, that's what doublethink is. He's already come up with how he's going to defy all logic and common sense. So then he says Winston realizes that O'Brien's mind contains his own mind. Right. Like, his, his mind is bigger and it's already had all the thoughts that Winston's mind ever has. Yeah. It, it is kind of chilling to me in the book that it seems like O'Brien does know everything Winston's thinking. I mean, he just, it's like, it's like he's the devil. You know, he know, the devil knows what you're thinking. But, uh, but this quote where, that my wife was talking about says, they got me a long time ago, said O'Brien, with a mild, almost regretful irony. He stepped aside. From behind him, there emerged a broad-chested guard with a long, black truncheon in his hand and then listen to what he says to Winston you knew this Winston said O'Brien don't deceive yourself you did know it you've always known it you know so to me that's just uh I don't know that's really really quite chilling so all right did you have something to say there dear no all right let's talk talk talking about the torture beginning of his torture and his confessions well this is pretty hard like like we've been saying this is pretty hard to read um but it's like his whole body feels like it's getting pulled apart so so o'brien turns on the dial and it's seems like maybe it's an electric pulse maybe right. he's being electric shocked but he, he feels like the, the main thing he's worried about is that his spine will snap and that the spinal fluid will ooze out that's that's how bad it feels right right that's how graphic it gets that's why i don't think this Book three is such so good for young people, right. especially if they have a lot of imagination, because they're going to be spending a lot of nights, you know, awake, you know. So, go ahead, Emma. Do you want to say something there? I think 
it's it's kind of weird, but um, even though Winston knows where the pain is coming from and the fact that O'Brien is responsible for it, it almost seems like it's absence. Winston just has this feeling of gratitude and love towards O'Brien, which which is so weird because it's almost like he dismisses the reality of the fact that um, O'Brien is actually the reason that he's going through this pain. Right, right. It reminds me of it. I forget what the, I forget the name of it, but there's a oh, there's a psychological thing that happens to some some uh, prisoners of torture that they 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 um, as they big begin to Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, yeah Stockholm. Right? That's it. Thank you. Yes, and that's that's what it reminded me of is Stockholm mm-hmm. syndrome right. because 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 although he causes the pain, he actually. Um, stops it too so when he stops it then he loves him for stopping the pain yeah right at at, at one point though this is uh, on my book it's page 217 uh and i know we all have different books which um is okay because we all read it really really good Uh, anyway (laughs) but but the thing is um in in the middle of the torture you know uh uh Again, as as Emma said, you know, it's like Winston is just he's kind of like confused by it all, and uh, he, he he's uh, you know laying on the bed on his back, and and he hears O'Brien's voice, and uh, he talks about all through his interrogation, although he had never seen him, he had the feeling that O'Brien was at his elbow, just out of sight. It was O'Brien who was directing everything. It was he who set the guards onto Winston and who prevented them from killing him. It was he who decided, and this is going back to when he and Julia were caught. You know, it says, uh, but O'Brien was right there. It was he who decided when Winston should scream with pain, when he should have a respite, when he should be fed, when he should sleep, when the drugs should be pumped into his arm. It was he who asked the questions and suggested the answers. He was the tormentor. He was the protector. He was the inquisitor. He was the friend. And once, Winston could not remember whether it was drugged or sleep or a normal sleep or even a moment of wakefulness, a voice murmured in his ear, Don't worry, Winston. You are in my keeping. For seven years I have watched over you. Now the turning point has come. I shall save you. I shall make you perfect. And so, so I mean, that is incredible. the incredible mind of a torturer. He's saying, "Look, I'm going to torture you to make you perfect," and you know that's that. I, I think that that Orwell saw some of this happening when he was in Catalonia, when he was in the Spanish Civil War. He saw what the what the Russian, you know, socialists could do, and and if, if, I think historically we know that they wanted to capture him. They called him like he was a Trotskyite, and you know, Stalin was. You know, he executed Trotsky. He wanted to execute everybody that was with Trotsky. Uh, Orwell wasn't with Trotsky. Orwell was with Orwell. <laughs> it's kind of like Winston's with Winston. You know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. So, so I don't know whether he's he's uh, you know parodying Winston after his own life, but but to me that's just really, really uh, chilling. You know that, that you could be that way to another human being. Well, O'Brien does clearly have a lot of experience with torture, and that's probably why he could read Winston's mind. And then once Winston's mind is being read, he starts to think, wow, O'Brien might actually be right. He might be the one who's wise because he's already dismissed all the thoughts I've ever had. He's already addressed those thoughts in his own mind and conquered 
those wrong thoughts. That's the way Winston started to look at it. So then if you think, oh, he's wise and also he's showing mercy to me at times because he could just be flipping the switch on and never turning it back off. So you could see where maybe Winston starts to have this this feeling that O'Brien knows a lot more than him and O'Brien just wants the best for him ultimately for him to finally cleanse his mind. Right. Right. Go ahead, Emma. Yeah. I think another point that um, it can be brought out between the relationship be- between Winston and O'Brien is there's a quote that says, um, perhaps one did not want to be loved so much as to be understood. And that whole process of torture between O'Brien and Winston um, Winston's just coming to see that O'Brien understands where he's coming from and even though he's just being absolutely ruthless and brutal toward him he's he feels understood and that's satisfying to him in a way right right I, I think that, that 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 to me that is a great quote and uh you know that that really is in some ways that's the danger of leadership you have to be really careful as a leader you know that that um you know it's and I think it's also in this book where where O'Brien says, you know, it's the party's view of truth, it's the truth. And, you know, and so, so that's how he's going to make him perfect. He's got to see that the party is the only one telling the truth. But Winston, even after most of the torture is done, he still thinks on his own, which is really kind of neat, you know, and uh, uh, anyway. Uh, but there's so much of that, even that that, that whole statement that, that um, Orwell makes here about you know, the party sees what the party holds to be truth is the truth. That's really what's going on with all the the liberal media as well. You know, it's like uh, we off. I think a lot of us often wonder: Does they they all get to the same memo every day? <laughs> because it, it, or, or else they hear one and they all have to pick it up. You know, is is there like? And I I was talking to someone about this, and and I guess there are these media moguls that do own the different media outlets. And so they can put a memo out that goes down through, because you know, there's, here we are in Oklahoma, which is a very conservative state, but you know, sometimes you know, the local channels sound just like CNN. You know, it's like, are they forced to do that? And I, I asked that question and someone said, they probably are. They probably get the memo. You've got to, you've got to view it this way. And uh, you know, to be honest, it's like it's really hard to turn on the news these days because you just don't, you know, I'm sticking with Trumpet Daily, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's where I get my sanity every morning. All right. Um, let's let's talk, oh, well, you know what? I just looked at the clock. We are done with this program. So so we're going to have to uh, to get on our, our uh, best uh, talking points next time. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, we'll continue our discussion of Book 3. Now, you can still buy 1984 at Amazon.com, but I'm afraid you better get in line because a lot of people are buying it. Uh, You can find a copy in your local bookstore. Uh, Of course, you can also check your local library if they're open. You know, a lot of libraries are not open because of the COVID-19 crisis. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliteratureone. one You can follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. And so until next time, keep reading. You 
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.